Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Thank you. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 9. I'm going to come closer to you. We're going to begin in verse 9. We're going to read all the way through to verse 20. And I want to remind you of where we are as we go. Um, Nehemiah is returning to the land of Jerusalem. He has been given orders by the king to do so. And he immediately faces opposition, which is to be expected when you obey the word of God and you begin to follow that you should expect there will be opposition. So let's read together first verses 9 through 20 and we'll dive right in. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the, Hor- the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servants heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose at night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one of what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dung spring, to the dung gate. I'm sorry, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up at night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley and entered by the valley gate. And so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been on me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But Sanballat, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, just to recap, this this is when the story of Nehemiah gets exciting because the fights start. People start fighting and we tend to get really excited about this part because Nehemiah is victorious over the fights. That's great. But I want to remind you of a couple things. One, this does not go well. At the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's book gets bad. 
It's just the way that things are. Nehemiah, the purpose of the book of Ezra Nehemiah, which is one book in the Hebrew canon, the purpose of the book is that you would see our need for Jesus. That no matter how good your leadership, no matter how strong you do, no matter how well you enact things on this earth, no matter how many John Maxwell books get written about Nehemiah, John Maxwell, the leadership guru guy, no matter how many... Some of you are giving me blank looks. That's the guy that writes all the books on leadership. So the, no matter how many books get written about Nehemiah's leadership and power and strength and how to lead your businesses and how to lead your church through Nehemiah, no matter how many sermon series are preached about the application of the text of Nehemiah, no matter how many, the point of Nehemiah is you need Jesus. And all throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, all throughout the book we see this picture of the Jesus we need given in these characters. And Nehemiah today, in today's message, fills one of those. Now, if you, uh, we can draw a lot of leadership lessons from Nehemiah. We can draw a lot of applications from Nehemiah. We can draw a lot of daily life lessons from Nehemiah. And certainly we will at times as we go through. We'll make uh, notes of those as we go through Nehemiah and even in this passage. And yet the focus that we need to have is to recognize that we are in desperate need of a Savior who leads us, guides us, and walks with us. And that's what we're going to see, I think, as we go through Nehemiah, a Savior who has come to rescue and walk through life with us. So, just a recap. Nehemiah has prayed and waited. That was the first message. He prayed for four months before he approached the king, and he waited. And we think four months is a long time, and it's not. So we need to learn to pray and wait. Um, and so look for time to act. This is another thing. We look for the time to act. Uh, we learned this last week by faithful prayer, faithful study, faithful community, and attention to our circumstances. That's when we look for the movement of the Lord. That's how we find the movement of the Lord. Faithful study, faithful prayer, faithful community, and attention to your circumstances. And then we prepare for opposition. Nehemiah has been in a position where he is preparing for the opposition. So he's ready to go, and when he goes to the king, he asks for letters from the king, he asks for uh, support from the king, he asks for military guard from the king. So he is ready. He's prepared for the opposition that he knows is going to come. And just like Nehemiah, you and I, we ought to prepare for opposition when things, when we start to obey the word of God. When you start to love people deeply, when you start to engage with people on a deep level, get prepared for things to go bad. Get prepared for things to go bad. Get prepared for a fight to come up. Get prepared for divisiveness to get come up. Get prepared for temptation to come up. This is just a simple side application. Nehemiah prepared for the opposition he was going for or going into and he has and we ought to do the same. When you start to obey the word of God, the, the devil, the adversary, sin and even the world around you will not like it. And there will be opposition and you will have difficulty. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. That's where our heart is. That's where our joy is. This is where 
we get our life. So verse 9 and 11, let's look there together. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare and 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 the welfare of the people of Israel. Now Nehemiah shows up and he arrives and he comes with authority. Note, he comes with the king's letters. These are letters that give him authority. He essentially, remember from last week, is promoted from mid-level to low-level management as the cupbearer to governorship. Again, this would be akin to if you were a butler in the White House or a low-level staffer in the White House and you went to the president and said, can I be the governor of New Mexico? And he said, sure. And he gave you letters. This is insane. It's wild. It is clearly a work of the Lord that this has happened. So he is going, comes with the king's letters. And not only does he come with the king's letters, but he comes with the officer's and horsemen. He comes with military guard. He comes with bodyguards. And, and he's got the authority of the king and a military host. He's got the authority of the king, the writings of the king, and a military host. There's another king that came with a bunch of ancient writings and a heavenly military host when he showed up on earth. Do you remember? It's in the Gospel of Luke. It's in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, you have Jesus showing up and he's got all the prophets behind him. He's got all the writings of the Old Testament behind him, proclaiming he has come in Bethlehem. He's come to the city of David. He has come. He will come as in the city of David. And all through his life, he's got these letters of commendation. And he has a heavenly army that shows up in a field to a bunch of shepherds and proclaims his greatness. This is a picture of Jesus coming. This is a picture. It's not Jesus. Nehemiah is not Jesus. But he's a picture of what is to come. And, and we see the king shows up with the king's authority and a heavenly host of angels. Never forget that though Jesus chose and came as a baby, as an infant, humble and meek and small, he is the commander of the Lord's army. He is the one in charge of everything. And when he walks into a place, every knee bows. Every head drops. We see this with the prophets. When they see the coming Lord, what is the first thing that happens? They fall on their face. And these are the people who love him. These are the ones who love him. When the the people who hated him, when the guards came to get Jesus in the garden, do you remember what happens? He says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am. And they fall on their face and can't get up. I just imagine one of them going, can you let us go? And he goes, you let all these other guys go and I'll come with you. That's the John Elkins translation, but that's what he that's what he does. You let all these others go and I'll come with you. And he, they get up and then he willingly goes to the cross. This is our king. He is not subservient 
to the earth. He is in charge. And when he shows up, he's got a military guard with him. Just like Nehemiah here comes, he comes with the officials' letters, and he comes with the, the writings of the king, he comes with the, the authority. He also comes to seek the welfare of the people of God. <laughs> Nehemiah sees the condition of the people, and he comes to seek their, their welfare. The people of Israel are not in good position. In the last chapter, he says, the, the walls are burned down, the people are ashamed. He's deri- they're derided, they're, they're insulted, they're mocked, and they're ridiculed, and they don't have a good public outlook, they don't have a good inward outlook, they don't have a good settled conviction, they are, they're intermarried, they're synchronistic in their worship, they are falling apart. And he says, here, this is here, we see Nehemiah sees the condition of his people, and he chooses to come seek their, their welfare. Indeed, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek the welfare of us. He came to seek the welfare of the people of God. And so Nehemiah comes to seek their welfare there. Remember in John chapter 10, Jesus comes to find the sheep who are his. He calls them by name and they come to him. They know his voice. Jesus is the good shepherd. In fact, the translation is Jesus is the shepherd, the good one, the good one that was mentioned back in Ezekiel. He's the good shepherd and he's the one who has come to seek and save the lost. Indeed, Nehemiah has come to seek the welfare of the people of God. (coughs) I tell you, Jesus has come to seek the welfare of the people. He's come to seek your good. He's the good shepherd, and you can trust him. You can trust him. He sees, Nehemiah sees the condition of the people, and he comes to seek their welfare. Now, when he shows up, again, the setting, he immediately faces opposition from two guys in particular at the beginning and three at the end. Did you notice at the end of the passage, there's a third guy added, the Arab, Gershom the Arab. Um, Gershom, right? Geshem? Geshem. Geshem the Arab. Nehemiah immediately faces opposition. Now, Nehemiah's opposition. Let's look at them just for a second. Sanballat Sanballat is the governor of what is basically Samaria. He's the governor of the northern part of Israel. He is probably an older man. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 28, we're told that he has a daughter who marries into the high priest line. So he is not a Jew. Let's get that correct. Sanballat is not a Jew. He is a foreign governor who has synchronized worship with Judaism. And we know that he's synchronized worship because he's intermarried his daughter with Jews, and yet he is not a Jew. He doesn't claim to be a Jew. He's not trying to be a Jew. He is the governor of the northern the northern half of Israel. Now, the reason that that's important is because, remember, when the kingdom was divided, you had Samaria as the uh, northern kingdom's capital, and you had Jerusalem as the southern kingdom's capital. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. In that northern kingdom, you had the majority of the tribes. In the south, you had Judah and Levi, and they stayed in the south. And those uh, northern tribes synchronized worship. They made worship a blended activity. And they set up high places all over. And the reason they do this is very simple. It's very pragmatic. The northern kingdom wanted to keep the taxes in their kingdom. 
makes sense. So they set up high places for the Jews to worship all over the place. And in doing so, they enter into pagan idolatry and synchronized worship across the northern kingdom. And God says this very plainly, that they will be punished for this. And they get led into exile. So you've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Sanballat is the governor over that portion, over the northern kingdom. So there's some natural animosity here from the people who have grown up in the northern kingdom saying, you can't tell me I'm not good enough. You can't tell us that we're not a good enough place. You can't tell us we have to worship in Jerusalem. That's wrong. You can't tell us what to do. We are independent, free people. Sounds an awful lot like Texas, right? Like we, we are independent and free. You can't tell us what to do. Come and take it, right? That's, that's their kind of mantra. Yes, I do know that I just offended all Texans. The, we see that he has, he is the northern kingdom's representative. And then you got Tobiah. Now, Tobiah is most likely from the family line of the Tobiads, right? Which is Tobiah in Ezra chapter 2, verse 60. This is not the same guy in Ezra 2, verse 60, but he's of that line. We know he's of that line because the names match and because we see it in ancient Hebrew history that this guy is connected to that line. Now, what happens in Ezra chapter 2 verse 60 is that uh, there's a group of people who come to come with the returning exiles and they want to be in charge of stuff. They want some authority and they want some power. They want to be able to help with things. They want to be involved and they cannot prove that they have Jewish lineage. They cannot prove that they have Jewish lineage. They're mostly half-breeds, people who have intermarried and they've come from the areas and they come with a sense of pride that they want to serve as priests or they want to serve as leaders. They want to be in charge and they want things to go their way. And so they come to Ezra and they say, they come with, they don't come to, uh, what's his name? The, they come to Zerubbabel and they come to him and they say, we want to be in charge. We want to be involved. And Zerubbabel says, no, you can't because you're not of the priestly line and you can't prove it. And so you can be around, but until there's a high priest who can make provision for you to become in into the kingdom, you cannot serve in that role. Until there's a high priest, and again, it's a picture of we need Jesus. Again, that's the same picture. But he says until there's a high priest, we're going to hold off. We're going to hold off. And so that's this guy. Tobiah is from that line. It's been about 80 years or so, and he's from that line. And Tobiah is a man who has been told, you cannot be a high priest. You cannot be in charge. For good reason, you cannot be in charge. And he is scorned, and he's angry. But he lives in Jerusalem. So you've got Sambalat, Sambalat, the northern guy. You've got Tobiah, the guy inside. And what we'll see in a bit is that Geshem is from the southern end of things. So he's at the bottom. He's in the south. Now, Nehemiah uh, faces opposition. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention. So if you have this kind of person in your life, a Tobiah, someone who's scorned from church hurt, church, I use that term lightly because... Accountability does not mean hurt, right? Uh, 
church hurt, somebody who's been scorned because they've been told they were living in sin and they need to repent and they they refuse to do so. That person, when you have that person, the way that you handle that person, the, this is just a side application for you. The way that you handle Tobias in your life with the amount of grace you give them or the amount of grace you fail to give them, the amount of kindness and love that you exhibit towards them or the amount of love that you fail to give to them will affect the way that they are able to worship in the future. It will affect the way that they are able to worship in the future. Sometimes you can do the greatest job on the earth loving someone and showing them the truth and walking with them and they will still rebel. And sometimes you can do the worst job on the earth and God will use it to save the person. But the way that we treat other people is important. The way that we treat other people is important. Don't think that just flat out rejection and and legalistic law dropping on somebody is a good thing. Because that done without love and without grace, it needs to be done sometimes, but done without love and without grace damages people. And I do believe as part of what you see in Tobiah, they don't have Jesus. They don't have Jesus. They needed a high priest. They don't have Jesus. So we see in Tobiah this example of someone that we should strive to love and correct. And when we begin to seek the welfare of God's people, you will inevitably have people show up that are like this. People who will scorn the system and scorn the church and scorn the leadership of God because... They have been hurt. Now, Nehemiah has an incredible amount of patience. He stops here in verse 11 for three days. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Don't let that pass you by. This is a fun realization that you should see all through Scripture. This happens over and over and over. There's constantly three-day periods of rest, which is fantastic. Because who rests in the tomb for three days before resurrection? Jesus. Beautiful, obvious symbolism. This is common in Israel's history. We see it at Israel when they're about to cross the Jordan. They come to the Jordan and they stop for three days. And there's no reason. There's no, they're not building a bridge. Like there's no, they're not stopping to build something. They just stop for three days. They worship the Lord. They wait for three days and then they cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And then you've got, um, Ezra, who waits for three days before he does anything. And you've got Jonah, who's three days in the fish. And what does Jesus say to the Jews? You will have no sign except the sign of Jonah. For three days, I'm going to be in the belly of the, of the ground, and I'm going to come out. You'll have the sign of Jonah. And that's beautiful. And it's resurrection. Don't let this pass you by that in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah, when they're building the temple, he stops for three days before he inspects the walls. Before he gets to work, he rejoices for three days and pauses. There's a beauty here and there's a symbolism here that you ought to know. Resurrection is necessary and is coming. So Nehemiah rests for three days and no one notices. This is great. Nehemiah comes in as king, marches in with an army and no one notices. Where else does this happen? 
Think about the gospel introductions. Jesus shows up in a city, in a stable, and no one notices. So great was their lack of knowledge that that Matthew records the wise men coming and talking to Herod, and Herod goes, oh no. And all, it says, and all of Jerusalem feared. All of Jerusalem was afraid. Why? Because they missed their king. They missed the coming of the king. They were so consumed with the things of the world that they missed the coming of the king. Herod the Edomite, not even a Jew, Herod the Edomite fears when he shows up. Just like Sambalat and Tobiah fear when Nehemiah shows up. But there's silence. No one notices. Nehemiah stops for three days. No one says a word to him. We don't have anything recorded about what he did. He's walking around, talking to people. Nobody says anything. Nobody notices the king... The new governor with his entourage of soldiers. Nobody notices. It's three days of quiet silence. Now, Nehemiah stands for three days. Jesus waits for three days before resurrection. And then Nehemiah begins his research. Nehemiah starts his survey. It's a secret survey. He doesn't tell anybody about it. He starts his survey there in verse 12. Then I rose at night and I and a few men who were with me and I told no one of what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night. Now just take note of all the times he says by night. I went out by night uh, by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal to pass, uh, for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. So he says he went up by night, and he says that three times there. Verse 12, verse 13, and verse 15. He emphasizes I went out by night. He takes nobody with him. He takes a few men and he no one knows. He takes all these very secretive things to go do his survey of what would happen. Nehemiah begins to research what he's going to have to do. What he's going to have to do. Now I put a map in your bulletin. Most of you have a map. And in that map you'll see at the bottom portion... Uh, this bottom portion, you can see where the valley gate is, is right down here towards the south. Nehemiah treks down around to the south to the, the dung gate, the, the dragon pool, or really it should be rendered, it should probably be translated the serpent pool, is outside the gate down here by the dung gate. So that's where the serpent pool is. And then you go around to the fountain gate and the where I've marked the stairs of David, the pool of Siloam was somewhere near where the king's pool was. The pool of Siloam is the one that we see in John chapter 9, where Jesus tells the blind guy, go wash off in the pool of Siloam. That'll become important in a minute. And then he comes up, he goes north, and we probably assume that he goes up to about uh, the horse to about the horse gate, and then he turns around and goes back down the way he came and back in the valley gate. So that map should be helpful to kind of get a visual. He's looking at the southern end of Jerusalem. 
that dark line that's there is where the walls are at the time. So the temple has been rebuilt. It's been rebuilt. And some of the walls that are immediately around the temple are working. They're functional. But the southern end of Jerusalem is wide open and it's destroyed. And there are there are walls that are torn down. And there are places where there's supposed to be access where there's not access. So Nehemiah goes out in secrecy. One of the things that we can learn from Nehemiah's secrecy is that sometimes it's wise to hold back on your dreams, on sharing your dreams. I learned a long time ago in leadership that if you share all your dreams, you're going to disappoint people because they'll get excited about a dream that is just that. A dream that you're not told to continue and follow through with. Now, I have lots of dreams. I am a pastor, and I want to see the entire world changed. So I think this, and I think this, and I think we should do this, and I think this, we should do this. And that's why I surround myself with a community of believers who can look at me and go, John, stop it. Nehemiah wisely holds back his tongue from sharing everything. We need to be careful as we share dreams and as we share ambitions that we do so with wisdom. There is wisdom in silence. Andrew likes to remind me occasionally that it's better to be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and prove yourself to be one. It's great. I hinge on that often. This is a beautiful thing. We ought to learn to hold our tongue. And so Nehemiah shows us to hold your tongue, to do your research, to get ready. Now, let's follow the track of where he walks because there's some cool application here. Uh, first, he walks to the Dragon Spring and the Dung Gate. This is the area where, ne- where Jeremiah stood in front of all of Jerusalem and prophesied the downfall. Jeremiah prophesied what Nehemiah is walking around. Get that. Jeremiah, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, prophesies that the dung gate will be broken down. That the walls will come down. That things will be trashed. And that Israel is going to suffer derision and and scorn and shame. You can imagine Nehemiah riding quietly on his horse at night, looking at the gate, visualizing and thinking about the time when Jeremiah stood at that gate and proclaimed this truth and proclaimed exactly what's going to happen. Indeed, we can look back on Christian history and see the places where God has moved and worked and we can stand there and we can see where history has taught us that God's word is true. We can see that history has taught us that God's word is true. And so when we come to the dung gate that's torn down and we come to the dragon spring, we can see these things and know God has done what he said he's going to do. Likewise, we can do the same thing with the lives of people who are regenerated in the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ. We can look at them and we can say, see, God has done what he's going to do. We can look at the lives of fellow believers and we can go, see, God has done what he's going to do. He has changed their soul. He's changed their life. I love when I meet somebody who is not put together. Because those people I know, there's a background. 
And sometimes I know people who were so broken at one point in their life, who were so evil and wicked at one point in their life, who have repented and believed in Jesus and believed the gospel and the Lord saved them and they have been changed. And you would look at them today and you'd be like, oh, that's a great young man. That's a great man. And I'd go, ha, you have no idea how great God has done a work in him that is amazing. Oh, and this is why it's so important that we get to know each other. This is why it's so important in the community of faith that we get to know each other, that you have deep, abiding relationships with people where you know who they used to be. Where you know who they used to be and you've walked through their mess. You've walked through their mess with them and you know who they used to be. Some of you knew me 15 years ago when I was angry. When every sermon I preached was filled with rage. Some of you know. And you have seen me grow and you know that I'm not that person anymore. Praise the Lord that He's given me so much peace and grace and changed my heart. And yes, I was a believer then and I would call it righteous indignation. And yet at the same time, it was anger. And God dealt with it and has dealt with it still and deals with it over and over and over again. But I'm not the same that I used to be. No, I'm more like Jesus than I was yesterday. And indeed, you want to know if you're saved? You want to know if you believe in Christ? Are you the same as you were before? No, the way you check to see assurance is to see who was I before? Am I that person now? No, Christ has changed me. I've been moved. He's conformed me to his image. I've been washed with the water of the word and he has adjusted my heart and changed who I am. And I'm more like him today than I was yesterday. Praise the Lord. We need to know each other. We need to know each other. Because this is community and faith. This is where we see the joy of Jesus. Nehemiah walks across the bottom. He sees the dung gate and he sees that it's broken down. And why did Jeremiah prophesy that it would be broken down? And he prophesied that it would be broken down because of intermarriage and interworship. Marriage of the worship of Yahweh to the worship of Baal. He prophesied this very thing. And that's what's happened. And the dung gate has been broken down and Nehemiah sees it. And then he comes to the fountain gate and the king's pool. The fountain gate and the king's pool. The pool of Siloam is considered to be maybe the same pool. Scholarship is kind of torn on it. And you can see what we do know is that the pool of Siloam was associated with the location or nearby the king's pool. So the king's, what is the king's pool? In Second Kings uh, 20 verse 20, we see the king's pool mentioned as the, the pool that Hezekiah set up during the siege that would bring water into Jerusalem for the people so they wouldn't die. The king's pool was the spring of the water of life being brought to the, are you Are you following? The king's pool was the spring of the water of life into the people of God to give life to the people of God. Jesus in John chapter 7 stands up and says, I'm the living water. I'm the water. Come to me if you thirst. I'm here. He's the king's pool. In John chapter 9, when he sits down, and he spits on the guy's, spits on the mud, rubs the mud in the guy's eyes, says, go wash off at the pool of Siloam. It's the closest thing they had to the king's pool. 
which is the place where the people of God were supposed to be able to find life in the midst of a siege when everything was going to destroy them. So Jesus says, go wash off at the king's pool, the place of salvation, the place where I exist. For the king, the water of life has come, John 7, John 9. The water of life has come, John 9. You go wash in the water of life. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. God is a poet. And this is poetry. This is real poetry. And he says, he comes to the fountain gate and the king's pool. The places where the people of God were supposed to be refreshed by the water of God, the water of the king. And what does Nehemiah say about it? The animal that was under him was not able to pass. Nehemiah points out very gently in this conditional, in this statement here, access to the water of life is not available because the walls have been broken down. Note, he's not talking about keeping people out. This isn't about keeping people out here. This is access to the king's water. This is access to to the water of life that was supposed to keep them alive. He's not talking about keeping people out here. He's talking about letting people in to the water of life. And he says his horse couldn't get to it. He couldn't ride to it because the, the city's in such ruins. Couldn't even get there. Refreshment for the people of God is unavailable. Indeed, there's so many applications we can draw here. So many things I want to talk about. Ask me at lunch. There's a lot. He he is mourning here in his track. And then he turns around and goes back in the same way. Now, Nehemiah makes a call and motivates the people here in verse 17. So let's go down. He hadn't told anybody. Remind yourself, verse 16. He hadn't told anybody. Look at the list of the people he doesn't tell. The Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Basically everybody. He hasn't told anybody what's going on. He hasn't told anybody what his plans are. Verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, those people that he's just referenced, See the trouble we are in. I... Now, Nehemiah identifies with the people and he recognizes this as a communal work. The work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a communal work. I'll just say that outright before exegeting this particular verse. He's, the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a communal work. It's not done by nobles. It's not done by elites. It's not done by scholars. It's done by everybody. <laughs> Indeed, the greatest preachers in history, no education. Greatest preachers and missionaries in history, with the exception of maybe Paul. No, no education. The disciples are all Torah school dropouts. You know that because when Jesus goes to call them, they all have different jobs. And none of the Pharisees like them. If they were liked by the Pharisees, they would have been in and out of the Pharisee community, but they're not. They're all Torah school dropouts. The one who has potential to follow, uh, Nicodemus, who comes to him by night, a scholar among scholars, a priest of Israel. He's not one of the twelve, is he? 
No, the most devoted and powerful gospel teachers in history. No scholarly education. Nehemiah recognizes that the work of rebuilding the kingdom of God and rebuilding the temple is going to be everyone's work. And I tell you, the gospel is everyone's work. It's not mine. It's not just yours. It's not, it's not some programs. It's everyone's work. You are to share the gospel all the time in every place by word and by deed. That's who you are. That's who we are. As a community of faith, we do this together. The gospel is a communal work. The work of God is a communal work, and Nehemiah recognizes it. He also identifies with the people. Recognize, again, Jesus identified with you. He became man. He came down, and he became a man. He didn't come down and become a Pharisee. He didn't come down and become a king. He already was king. He didn't have to do that. As king, he came down and took the lowest position. What Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians took the lowest position form that he could becoming a servant to all washing the feet of his disciples this is your god this is your model this is who we worship he came down and became a man to identify with you and with me he became like us and we had echoes of this in Deuteronomy when he gives the law. He says, do not say who will go up to bring him down or who will come down to bring you up. I have come to you. We have echoes of this all through the Old Testament. This is not plan B. This is what Jesus intended to do from the beginning of time. He came down and identified with you. Nehemiah comes down and identifies with the people. He's from Susa. He was living a comfortable life. He moved to Jerusalem. He moved to Jerusalem to get to work. Because the Holy Spirit had grip on his soul and told him he needed to do it. He recognizes that this is a communal work, that this is the, the people's work. Note what Nehemiah does not do. Nehemiah does not go to Ezra and say, Ezra, can you show me where in the, where in the book of the law, where in the Old, Old Testament scriptures, it says how to rebuild a wall? Ezra, Ezra, can you tell me where the plans are for how to rebuild a gate in the book of the law? You know why he doesn't do that? Because it's not in there. It's not, it's not in there. No, God gives you principles to live by in the Word of God. He does not tell you where you're supposed to go to college, where you're supposed to take a job. He doesn't, you can't open the book and go, oh, plant a church in Brazoria. That doesn't, that's not in there. It doesn't say. No, it gives you principles by which to live. The methodologies by which you enact those principles our free game. You are to find the best way to do things as long as they are within the bounds of Scripture. So Nehemiah knows there are some principles that this is supposed to be the people of God's work, that this is supposed to be free of syncretism. He knows those things, but he doesn't go to Ezra and say, Ezra, can you show me where in the law it tells me how to rebuild the walls? No, he goes to con contractors and construction workers. And he goes, hey, how do you build a wall? I'm going to hire you to build a wall. He tells them these things. There are very rare exceptions to where God gives specific building instructions. Did you know, even in the tabernacle, 
Even in the tabernacle, God doesn't give, God gives them specific placements of things, tells them how to build so much. He tells them great detail of how to build a lot of it. But then it says he uh, inspired two particular craftsmen by the spirit of God, put his spirit in them, and they knew how to do the work. There are people who are gifted in things that are used for the kingdom because God inspires them to do the work. Nehemiah recognizes that this is a rebuilding thing that everybody needs to be involved in. This is a rebuilding thing that everybody needs to be involved in. Next, he identifies Jerusalem. This is to stress the severity of the situation. And he goes to the people who will do the work. He's stressing the severity of the situation, saying Jerusalem lies in ruins. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we no longer suffer derision. He's pointing out we are suffering because the walls are in are broken down and we are in derision. Apply this to the modern church. I don't have to do this work for you. Right? Apply this to the modern church. We are in derision. The walls are broken down. The scripture has been put second place to our attention, entertainment, and activities. Just apply it. it. You can and recognize that God has sent the word of God to the people of God that we might do the work of God by any means that we have at our disposal. We are gospel-centered people. We are people who are to love with abandon and to change this world. He stresses the severity of what we are in, and then he goes to the people who do the work. And what God has accomplished to this point then motivates the work. (laughs) Look at what he says there in verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been on me for good, and also of the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So they stand and they strengthen their hands for the good work. And why do they strengthen their hands for the good work? Because Nehemiah tells them of all the things God has done in the past. This is why it's so important, parents. It's so important that you talk to your kids about life and what used to happen and how God has done things, how God has moved, how God has changed things, how God has worked things. As your child grows and hears you speak about the Lord, you know what's going to come to their mind when they face trouble? God in the past has done good things. God in the past has done good things. I know so many stories about my parents. It's awkward because I'm telling you in front of my mom, she did a good job. They told me so many stories about life and ministry and everything. And when I faced hard times, I could lean on those and go, but I remember dad telling me, I remember mom telling me, remember to teach your kids about your past and what has happened and how you've gone along and how you've changed and how the Lord has changed you. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Nehemiah is not afraid of it here. Look at what the Lord has done. The Lord, the hand of God has been on me. The hand of God has been on me. He's not afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. The Lord has done great work. Nehemiah here was rebuilding a kind of physical temple. He was rebuilding a physical temple. We'll get to that in a second. He was rebuilding a physical temple. But we know this is a picture of the greater kingdom to come. 
We know that this is a picture of the greater kingdom to come. Indeed, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Abraham. And it says, Abraham looked forward to a future kingdom that he could not see. Not the one on earth, but the one he couldn't see. Nehemiah is looking forward to Jerusalem being built. He's building a physical kingdom. But we know that this is a picture of the greater Jerusalem that is to come, that we read about at the end of the book. We know there will be a greater Jerusalem to come. And that greater Jerusalem is Jesus Christ is King and Lord and rules in heaven. And we know that there's a greater kingdom than this one. Abraham sought that greater kingdom. Joshua sought that greater kingdom. All the saints of old sought that greater kingdom. Indeed, Nehemiah here is seeking to build the physical Jerusalem. But he's pointing us to a greater kingdom to come in Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus, you will be a part of that kingdom. Now there are some responses to the kingdom work here. First, the people of God are strengthened and they get to work. They get to work. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. Second, the opposition comes from every direction and they're credentialed leaders. We talked about how they have Sambalet in the north, uh, Tobiah in, inside, and Geshem is underneath. He's from Edom. He's a southerner. And he's from the south. And they're coming from every direction. And they are credentialed. Look at what they say. They say to him, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This is the same accusation that was leveled at Ezra and Ezra chapter four, or at, uh, sorry, at Zerubbabel and Ezra chapter four, when they said, what are you doing? You're rebelling against the king. Jerusalem's a rebellious and wicked city. And then they have to go through that whole letter writing thing back and forth with the king until they get permission to build again. These are from credentialed leaders and they attack. The opposition always attacks with the same strategy. The first thing they do is call into question your motive. The opposition always calls into question your motive. Are you really, do you really think that about yourself? Are you really saved? Do you really believe that? They call into question your motive. Are you just doing this out of pride, aren't you? Right? That's the first attack. It's always motive. You're just doing this out of pride. Don't you understand that you could get this better? Don't you understand this could be done better? Always attacks there first. Second, they ridicule. They ridicule. This happens further in Nehemiah chapter 4. They question your significance. Do you matter? Come on, what you're doing doesn't matter, does it? Meeting in this small room in the middle of Brazoria, Texas on Sunday morning for worship. That doesn't matter. Having lunch together, that's not. right. They call into question your motives for righteousness and goodness. Including when you do righteousness. When you're in those secret places by yourself. What's your real motive for not doing that? Well, you're, you know, you're dealing with this issue over here. You're wicked. You're, you can't handle those things. And you have a benefit that no one else has. You can look at them and say, sure. Sure. Yeah, sure. Okay. But my God has forgiven me. And I am changed. And no matter what, temptation or sin is thrown my way. I know that Jesus Christ has changed my heart and my life and he's made me his and I can respond to him. I get caught sometimes here when the adversary accuses me of prideful motives or when people accuse me of prideful motives because I will pridefully do the opposite of whatever they just said. Somebody tells me I'm doing this out of pride. I'll be like, fine, I'm not doing that anymore. And pridefully... I'll do the opposite. Thank the Lord I have a community of faith around me who look at me and go, hey, loosen up. That was a that was an attack 
let's let's head towards righteousness anyway. We can see that it is imperative that we understand when the opposition attacks, he does the same thing every time. They call into question your motive and they ridicule you. They will make you feel small. They will make you feel insignificant. But you have a God in heaven who has said that you matter. You have a Lord who has given you worth and a position and a place to work. And it's not because you're great. It's because He's great. It's because He's great. Remember this. This is the answer to the, to the attack of the adversary. Remember the saints who have gone before. First, remember the saints who have gone before. Remember Nehemiah's motivating words were what God has done. So, Hebrews chapter 11. When women, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sewn in two. They were sawn in two. They were killed. They were with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom, now here's what the Bible says about these people, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these things, though commended, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hebrews chapter 35 through 40. Remember the great cloud of witnesses behind you that have stood in faith as martyrs of the faith, following hard after Christ. What power we have when we remember those who have come before us and suffered. The second answer to the attack is remember that Jesus suffered these attacks. Remember that Jesus suffered these attacks. Luke chapter 22, verse 63 through 64. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who has struck you? And again, in Hebrews, I mean, in Luke 23, 11, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Jesus was mocked and scorned. He was beaten and bruised. He was treated horribly. If you want to suffer, if you want to stand strong in the attacks of adversaries, in the attacks of opposition to the gospel, remember these things. We have saints who have gone before us, a great cloud of witnesses that we can trust, that we can look at for motivation. We can see where God has worked in the past through saints of old. And we can remember God did not simply leave us to deal with a mess. He went through it for us on our behalf. He went through it for us on our behalf. He has been where you are. He has been where you are. And that's one of the most comforting things I have ever heard in the gospel. Jesus Christ has been where you are. He has hurt. He has labored. He has struggled. He has been beaten and mocked and derided. And he has been ridiculed. And he responded in love and grace to you and to me, the very people who nailed him to the cross. He has been there. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Hebrews 13, 13. So, Nehemiah then responds to these oppositions. And the first thing he does is appeal to the God of heaven. Look at that in verse 20. Then I replied to them, 
The God of heaven will make us prosper. He doesn't say the king of Persia. He doesn't say, I've got legal letters, go away. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. He appeals to a higher authority than they have. Indeed, you, by the way, all of you, me, we appeal to a higher authority. In every situation, no matter what the situation is, we appeal to a higher authority. Second, he ignores the ridicule and gets to work. D.L. Moody has a great statement. He says, let the dogs bark and the gospel train keep going. Let the dogs bark and the gospel train keep going. Dogs bark at trains. They can't stop the train. They can't bite the train. They just bark at it. So you let the dogs of this world bark and you keep doing gospel ministry. You keep working. People don't like when you share the gospel. Do it anyway. People have trouble when you share the gospel. Do it anyway. People have trouble when you love them. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Ignore the work, ignore the ridicule and get to work. And then finally, no synchronism. Look at what he says. We, we as servants will arise and build. That's to get to work. And then the last part, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Do not compromise the worship of the Most High God with synchronism. I understand how tempting it is to say that we will simply incorporate some things that people love to do, that people love. We'll just incorporate those things. I understand how tempting that is. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't incorporate things that are not of God. Don't incorporate things that are not of God. Just like in Ezra chapter 4, verse 3, Nehemiah very politely says to these people, get out. And likewise, when we face opposition as Christians, we need to remember what God has done in the past, what He has done in the saints of old, what He has done in the past. We need to remember what He's doing now. We need to appeal to the God of heaven now. And we need to get to work let the ridicule come and get to work on the gospel. That's our commission as Christians. Father, we pray.